the world is complicated. We have big things to solve like a pandemic. And we, when we get information about it, we want it to be reliable when it's coming from the top. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I'm talking with Jevin West, Jevin is an associate professor at the University of Washington's Information School, where he specializes in misinformation. That's analyzing it and fighting it, not distributing it. He's also the director of the Center for an Informed Public at UW, and he's a co-author with Carl Bergstrom of Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World, which is based on a class that he and Carl teach. When we booked Jevin to come on this episode, we knew there'd be a lot to talk about. We had hoped that we would maybe be speaking in the past tense, I think, about the role that misinformation had played in an election with a clear result. Instead, we're in the thick of it. There was a clear result, of course. Joe Biden has been projected as the winner of the presidency, and the margin leaves no real doubt. But the campaign to delegitimize the win, or perhaps even overturn it in a kind of soft coup, appears to have only just begun. Since Election Day, the president and his supporters have been lobbing accusations of voter fraud, which have been unsubstantiated and are frankly insignificant, even if they are true. To many of us, these maneuvers are frightening or maybe just pathetic. But to many Americans, it seems, the accusations appear valid. I'm hoping Jevin can help us understand why and what we can do about it. So, Jevin, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Well, thanks so much for having me, Mark, and thanks for the introduction. I'm glad that you corrected, too, that I'm not, hopefully not spewing most of the time misinformation, but hopefully talking about ways to intervene and stop it. It was just a a perfect introduction, so thanks a lot for having me. (laughs) Great, great. Um, So I wanted to start just by asking you, how did you spend your election day? In the olden days, when I was young, you could spend the day you know, mining all the the newspapers and conversations around the election. You have your popcorn or you have, you know, you're hanging out at your friend's house and and watching the news come in. That wasn't the case this year. So we um, in the Center for an Informed Public, in partnership with Stanford University and a couple other labs, DFR Lab and Graphica, launched a program we called the Election Integrity Partnership. Um, this uh, it was launched in September, and the goal was to monitor real-time misinformation and disinformation about the election. And on election day, we were not sitting and watching the, te- I mean, watching the television just to see what else was going on. We were incredibly busy. And it f- there was a good feeling about that. I felt like we were doing something about it. Right. Um, so when we saw things rise, we could immediately get that over into the platforms or tell the journalists. We were up literally almost day and night, uh, almost 24 hours, at least when we look at our team overall. And, and as you can imagine, we saw a lot of stuff. It almost, uh, when, you, when you swim in that kind of information, it sort of gives you a, a slightly different perspective. So we had to take a break and walk around the neighborhood a little bit here and there. So I, I want to take a step back from where we are right now and talk a little bit about the run-up to the election and, and maybe election day itself. Social media platforms uh, appear to have stepped up in some way to uh, at least label, um, if not hide or delist misinformation. And this is all kind of in reaction to 2016, 
Do you feel like the platforms did a good job in the run up to the election and election day itself? What, what kind of a grade would you give to to the platforms? I would probably give them a B minus. They certainly passed the class. They made huge improvements, I think, since 2016. And I think they they set it up by doing uh, implementing more proactive policies from the pandemic. The pandemic was the first time that they had specific policies that they could consistently look to when needing to either take something down or provide these these tags or these banners. They had all sorts of different strategies. So in some ways, they did quite good uh, when you compare to 2016. For example, they did a good job of removing state-sponsored uh, disinformation accounts or people that were pushing that kind of thing. So they did a good right. job on foreign-based accounts. Domestically, though, is where we saw most of the disinformation this year. And so, yes, there were tags and banners and labels put on lots of social media content, including on the political leaders themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not enough to stop the spread, really. I mean, what we find in our research, and actually as the field has found over years of doing this, that the, the, the debunk almost never, ever exceeds the original rumor or conspiracy theory. So by right. it's almost too soon. It's, it's gone too far before the debunk is going to even really have any effect. But again, that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. And they are doing that. And in some ways, they may have even stepped too far. So the Hunter Biden New York Post article was highly controversial. The actions that Twitter, uh, you know, their action of taking it down or removing it may have actually given it more attention. Right. In some ways, they, you know, maybe they went too far. Other way, other ways, they didn't go far enough. So they're they're sort they're sort of in this stage where they're they're just they're still figuring it out, and they are, you know, swinging back and forth. I'm not giving them a free pass, but the social media companies. Um, have a tough task in front of them. The scale of it's really challenging. It, they don't want to be in the business of deciding what's true or not, or what's what's a lie or what's not, or what's dangerous or what's not. There are some areas that are easier to remove. So things like certain pornographic things or violence, or there, there are some things that are easier. When it comes to political discourse, it is challenging. And they're still figuring out what their policies are because the more that they can make those policies very specific, um, but writing policies is not so easy, the more the, the easier it is for them to defend what their actions will be. Now, you, something you're going to see going forward is that you're going to see a lot more discussion from both parties yanking them to the regulatory table for different reasons. And you will start seeing likely if these policies hold more tagging of leaders. Um, you'll see more content that's going to be um, labeled or taken down completely than, than we've seen before. So the effects of this election are going to go beyond the election. Is there a risk that if this is viewed as a success for them, these tools that they've rolled out of overreach? I, I think there is concern. You certainly are seeing the, the concerns really vigorously being discussed on the political right right now. Right. And, and some things are for good reason and some things maybe not for good reason. I mean, one of the complaints that people from the political right are saying just in the last few days is that there's been very little censorship on the left and there are potential examples that, that maybe should have been censored. But there, there should be concern that this should be a concern from the left or the right.
it feels like the misinformation that is coming out now, man, it just feels different in a way. And I don't know if it is or if it is that something that is so clear and an institution like the vote, like the election, that it's challenging that and that that misinformation for me personally is really disorienting. Are you seeing something different happening in the last week? Or is this just, you know, the same game being played on a different court? It is disorienting. Um, and it's concerning because this kind of misinformation, it's the kind that can have long-term negative impacts on democracies. If mm. we start to reduce that trust in the institution of the voting process, then what's going to make your neighbor take the day off from work and stand in line to vote? And it can be disorienting because people have talked about the fear of this happening. Everyone's been concerned that the real loss of this whole event would be a distrust, that that distrust in the system has long-term negative impacts on that system. And my guess is that we'll continue to see after the election, there'll, there'll all these be this reference to these, this fraudulent, uh, stolen uh, election, possibly. Well, let's, I want to go a little bit deeper here. And I, I, I don't mean to just sort of like hammer on this point, but I, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about what's yeah. happening right now and some of the things that we've been seeing. You know, so this this misinformation, this sort of these accusations of, of widespread voter fraud, and we should say, you know, voter fraud does happen right. in elections, but at the scale where you can actually flip one state by thousands of votes, much less five states, is... Um, that, that nothing like that has ever happened. There is no evidence of that happening at all. This misinformation is so bad that Fox News, uh, at least the, the news arm of it, is, you know, cutting away from White House press briefings. Uh, but there are all these lawmakers who are giving oxygen to this. And, you know, there was this story in the, the Washington Post yesterday. I don't know if you saw it, but there was a, a quote where a Republican source told the reporter, what is the downside of humoring him this little bit of time? No one seriously thinks the results will change. I, I feel like I know what you're going to say, but I want to ask you, what is the harm in humoring President Trump for just a little bit in this instance? The harm is that erosion of trust. But I will say this, the best defense that people have about this issue is that there is a process by which you can litigate these things in court. There might not be much evidence and you can get a lot of these, these conversations with the lawyers and the judges, they sort of just sweep them out so fast because there's not much evidence of voter fraud, not just in this election, but in the many, many elections before, as you say. And this has been investigated on both the left and the right. There's such little evidence, which really speaks to our process. We should see that with pride. All these votes and all the things that can go wrong and all the work that's been done trying to see if there is problems, because there's a lot at stake, that we have a small amount. There's a small, tiny amount. That's great. What, I mean, what a great process. It doesn't mean we shouldn't look for it still, and it doesn't mean that they don't exist. They do, but they're so in low pro proportion. 
certainly if there's a process, there's a process built into this whole system that allows for these uh, questions in court, fine. It does slow down the process, especially when there's not much evidence to support that kind of effort because it's expensive and it does create doubt, but that might be the goal. And if that's the goal and you don't really care so much about, you know, a smooth transition or giving, you know, the other team credit for winning at any point, then then I guess that's your goal. Um, it's going to come at a pretty serious cost, I think, in, in, in many ways. We're going to take a quick break right now, and then we'll be back with more from Jevin West. My name is Amanda Pyle, and I work on the data and analytics team at Cascade Public Media. As the audience data analyst, I help the journalists in the Crosscut newsroom understand who is reading, watching, and listening to their stories. But I don't just analyze our audience, I'm part of our audience. I stay up to date on the latest Crosscut headlines, I listen to our podcasts, I check out our online videos, and I subscribe to our email newsletters. I also donate. The journalism created by the Crosscut Newsroom, including this podcast, is free. But this work does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news source, we count on support from our readers, viewers, and listeners to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com backslash donate right now. Okay, back to the show. You know, one of the things that you do, which I really appreciate, is that you don't just point out a problem, but you uh, try to give people the tools to solve the problem. You know, trying to fight misinformation, disinformation is a big part of the work that you do. And so what is the best way for people who see this misinformation, maybe being spread by friends and family in conversation or on social media platforms, what's the best way to approach these false accusations, these claims of voter fraud in that social setting where you can maybe challenge them, maybe change a mind and not, you know, end your relationship with that person? They're hard conversations. I have them with my family and friends. I come from a small town in Idaho where I still have these conversations. And I think you have to go into them with true empathy um, to, to really try your best not to, of course, attack the individual. I mean, that doesn't work. Shaming doesn't work in these kinds of situations. Right. To, to understand that there is a person on the other end that came to this conclusion for various value-based reasons, I imagine. And so trying to find where the common values are. We both want healthcare. We both want, you know, strong economies. We want our kids to go to school. I mean, starting with common values, trying your very best to ask questions rather than to just push facts as if facts would convince them figure out where they found those sources. And in many cases, you won't convince your family or friend or crazy uncle, but just by having that conversation and and treating them as a human being, uh, you know, there might be a chance to just chip away so that the next time you talk to them, they're more comfortable with talking to you. I, I do think that most people have good intentions, but I think a lot of this division that we see in the United States right now is driven by you know, these hyper-partisan news environments in which people live, because more than 50% of Americans still get most of their news from, from cable news. I think that that's something that's 
driving a lot of this. I think the social media companies themselves and the platforms are driving a lot of this. And it's exacerbating differences that do exist, certainly. And there are, this is a complicated kind of situation, but I think the humans underneath, um, by connecting in more human ways, like having that conversation in person or on the phone and not necessarily online too, I think is a lot more helpful. I find that those are a lot more productive um, to have. But I think ultimately going into those conversations with empathy and willing to at least listen a little bit to the other side, you know, certainly you have to stand your ground a little bit. And there's some people you'll never convince too. Uh, we talk, I talk to my students about this, that there's just some people you can't convince. It's, it's tough. All right. I've got one more question for you. And this one is a little bit taking a step back and just thinking about the last four years. And I think that the prospect of the end of the Trump presidency, I think no matter what your politics are, that you have to recognize that that there has been an onslaught of information from the president and that a great amount of that information is bad information. Swimming in this pool for four years of misinformation, what has that done to us? I think about it all the time, Mark, and it's a great question and a question that's going to take years to sort out. But my, my take on it is that it, it's creating a generation of cynics. Um, when I talk to the younger generation, for example, um, one of the concerning things I keep hearing from them when talking about media literacy and data reasoning and misinformation more generally, they typically say, well, I can't trust anything. I can't, you know, why should I trust you? I know everything that I'm, most of what I'm reading is not true. That to me is, is the, one of the most concerning things of all, that we don't have trust in any of our institutions. We depend on that in a democracy. We require gatekeepers or at least experts to sort out all this information, to do collective decision-making you need experts out there. And right now, the idea of an, of an expert is as attack because we live in these altered universes right now. And I do think the density of falsehoods that have come from government officials, in, including Trump, is going to have a large chain effect. And I, I know people that voted for Trump. They recognize, at least the ones I talk to, recognize that he says too many things that are just simply not true. It takes a toll on society because the world is complicated. We have big things to solve like a pandemic. And we, when we get information about it, we want it to be reliable when it's coming from the top because those individuals are our super spreaders of either good information, bad information, or no information. If we can't even trust that, or we, we aren't sure whether maybe the information is good coming from the CDC anymore or the World Health Organization, then what do we look to? Then we retreat to our hyper-connected, super small neighborhoods, information neighborhoods, either online or offline. And those aren't people that have spent a career trying to understand the dynamics of this awful infectious disease that's, that's gone around the world and what we need to do, at least in our best estimates at this time, on how to combat it and get back to work. And so when you when you get this constant barrage of things that are just not just a little bit untrue, but very untrue, 
the whole system depends on trust. Our money systems mm -hmm. depend on trust. You know, our trust in our leaders that we pay our taxes to. I mean, it all depends on trust. And that trust is eroding. And you can look at a lot of the metrics that people have been using for decades and the surveys that have been done for decades on trust. And institutions across the board, especially in media, you know, and in government are going down. According to Gallup, 10% of Republicans trust mainstream media. Just listen to that number. When I think about the misinformation problem, I always say if I had a magic wand, it would be to reinvest in local journalism. If there's any antidote, it's education and it's more journalists out there doing the work to try to sort through these complicated stories and to, to figure out, to help me make those decisions. They're not gonna always get it right. But when you t attack too that every news journalist out there is fake news, just that right there is gonna have long-term effects. And we need to reverse that because we need trust in journalism. I mean, to me, honestly, if I could do one thing, it would just be to have more people like you, Mark, and others out there doing this kind of work, having conversations, meeting with people in the communities. I think that's what we need to do, re really reinvigorate that kind of uh, information editing at a large scale. So to go to your original question, it is having uh, a long-term effect. And the thing that scares me the most is it will just degrade all of our trust in institutions. Um, and that, we can't solve these big problems if, if no one has trust in the system. And so hopefully we can reverse that trend um, and, and, and get more reliable news coming out of you know, high, high leadership positions. All right. That's Jevin West. His book is called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. And Jevin, uh, if anybody has any ideas on how to solve this problem, how do they get in touch with you? They should reach out to us if you go to cip.uw.edu. It's our URL. It's the website for our Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. We are a community center. We do research, of course, but one of our big missions is education, community outreach, and we need the community. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jevin. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jevin for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.